We've no doubt heard these words from the carol, the first Noel, many times in recent days, on a cold winter's night that was so deep. There's something of that feeling as we journey along with two characters created by Tolstoy in his story, Master and the Man. Vasily is the master and Nikita the servant, and heedlessly Vasily sets out on business in seriously threatening weather, Nikita in tow. And Tolstoy writes, Phew, how it blows. The snow is drifting so hard that we shan't be able to get out in the morning, thought he, listening to the bursts of wind which bent back the front of this sledge and covered the crevices of the bast with snow. I ought not to have given in to Nikita. We ought to have gone on, and we should have come out somewhere. If we had only returned to the village, we could have slept at Taras's. And now we have to sit out here. Shall we get any good out of it? In the depth of his heart, Vasily knew it could not yet be morning, but he was growing more and more timid and wished at once to make sure or to deceive himself. So he cautiously unhooked his undercoat and slipping his hand into his bosom, fumbled after his waistcoat. At last, with great effort, he dragged up his silver watch with enameled flowers and tried to see but without a light it was impossible. Profiting by experience, he knew how, and choosing a match with a good head, lit it at the first attempt. Bringing the face of the watch to the light, he could not believe his eyes. It was only ten minutes past midnight. The whole night was still before them. Oh, the long night, thought Vasily, feeling a cold chill down his back as he buttoned up again, and snuggled into the corner. At last, out of the monotonous roar of the storm, he clearly heard a new living sound. The sound grew regularly stronger, up to perfect clearness, and then, as regularly, died away. There was no doubt about it. It was a wolf. And that wolf was so close that downwind it was easy to hear the movement of his jaws as he modulated his howl. Vasily put his collar down altogether and listened anxiously. The pony also was all attention, pricking his ears, and when the wolf had finished, he changed his feet and gave a warning neigh. After this, Vasily could rest easy. However hard he tried to think about his accounts, his business, his glory, his worth, and his riches, terror grew more and more his master, and over every other thought predominating it or crossing it came the self-reproach of why he had not remained the night in the village. Vasily, there alone with his thoughts, at first he can only think of his wealth and glory, and then the weather prevails. Vasily will perish in the end, driven by greed and obsession with possessions. He didn't plan for the journey, did not prepare for the fiercest of snowstorms that would swallow them. There are lessons for living that Tolstoy suggests in this story for our journeying through the storms of life. 
we might say, well, yes, it's a compelling tale told by a mighty writer. We can feel the chill in our bones, so sharp are the descriptions. But that was the 19th century, and this is now. Mark Stavish might say, not so fast. He is a specialist in Western spiritual traditions and author of 26 books published in seven different languages. Simon & Schuster, through Inner Traditions, has published his recent book, Egregores, on the concept of a collective group mind. Mark Stavish stopped in at the WVIA studios to talk with us about the turning of the year and about New Year traditions and reflecting on the past and what's to come. I think that's really what winter is all about. It really is about reflection. And if we look at it historically and in context, you know, why do we call this month that we're moving into January? Well, it, it comes from the Roman god Janus, who has two faces. And what we mean by that is one is looking forward and one is looking back. And, and Janus is a fascinating deity because there aren't many things known about him. There aren't that many rites. Yet it, he appears again and again because... He is really the deity or the force of nature of time, of transition itself. So we have him at all thresholds. You know, all of the deities have a symbol, something associated with them. So his, of course, is the threshold or the arch, anything that is liminal or removing between things. So that would be uh, dawn and dusk. That would be seasonal changes as well. And, of course, the time of the year. I think probably January is interesting because it wasn't always the beginning of the new year, and traditionally March was, or spring, okay, the, the or equinox. So why? That makes sense. Things are getting warm in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, it's a time of uh, the three Fs, frolicking, farming, and fighting. So that's where armies would begin to move for the spring and summer. Farmers, of course, would have to plant, and of course, animals would have to do what animals do to make more animals. So all of this would occur, and that makes sense. It's the beginning of life. But sometime around uh, 713 BC, the Romans added uh, the month of January. They had a 10-month calendar, the two months that we think of as December and January, both ruled by the planet Saturn, by the way. And, of course, that's part of the way the ancients kept time was through astrology, which we would think of as astronomy, but looking at the skies to mark time, uh, because it is cyclic. It was repeatable. They could look at it and say, oh, well, they would predict based on where planets were, based on the notes and the, the histories that they took. And of course, that's how they began to think of astrology as a predictive art, okay, for fortune telling as we would think of it, but also just in terms of calendar making, it's very practical. So that being said, those were unnamed months, And of course, at some point they added January and things moved around a bit. And then of course, by the beginning of the 16th century, almost all of Europe was using January 1st as the beginning of what we could think of as the secular new year. But the winter didn't lose any of its meaning. And this is really critical because we're really very detached from nature. uh, And we see that on and on. And nature has a way of reminding us that she is always right. We need to really know that. Saturn, we say in astrology, tells us what reality is. Winter tells us what reality is. Nature tells us what reality is. And what that means to us in terms of winter is, well, we used to say, how many winters did someone survive when we marked their age? It was known as the killing time. People didn't survive. 
the Saxons referred to January as the time of the wolf. And we've always heard that phrase, the wolf is at the door. What does that mean? Things are dire. Things are desperate. And of course, everyone is familiar with the phrase from Game of Thrones, winter is coming. How do we prepare for what is coming, what we know is coming? And that's really the way we need to look at life. So that's what winter is asking us. And I, I kind of was thinking earlier on my way here, I said, you know, why is it that these Russian novels are always so long? And the joke is it's because the winters are so long and they're, they're stuck with their own thoughts inside. And that's what winter forces us to do. It forces us to go within ourselves, look at our own thoughts, deal with our own lives, and, and come to find meaning in that or make meaning out of it. And we kind of hold on to that a little bit today. I think with New Year's resolutions, we look back at what we have done and we look forward to what we might do and what we plan to do. So that's really kind of in a not so small nutshell. <laughs> what winter asks of us and what the new year asks of, of us as well. What happens if we don't heed the message of winter, of nature? There's a wolf waiting. Well, it's crisis. It's existential crisis. If we don't really, an existential means a crisis of our of being and meaning. And we all have to face this. And I mentioned this on my previous visits, you know, what is the meaning of life? Uh, what does it mean to be alone? What does it mean to die? But the idea is, this is what it comes to. So how do we extract meaning out of life? And uh, some people, it gets handed to them. You know, they, they grow up in an environment where this is what it means to be whatever. And they identify with that fully and completely. It can be a political cause. It can be a religious cause. It can be any kind of thing they identify with. We see these, we call them archetypes. Many times they're stereotypes. We see them all the time in people. And really, that's what a stereotype is. It's just a, a poor man's archetype. And we see it every time we watch television. That's what makes a sitcom funny. The characters are really two-dimensional, but if there wasn't something common about them, they wouldn't be funny across the community or across nations even. So we have to find meaning in life. And if we don't, then we end up with really a lot of serious mental health issues. And that's the crisis of meaning has been a topic probably across most of the 20th century. Here at WVIA-TV, there is an initiative called Mind Over Matter particularly focusing on those matters you just raised, particularly in light of what we've just experienced as a culture or as a world with the COVID pandemic and how the stresses are even more severe now and the isolation served as triggers, perhaps. Well, I think that's a great point. You know, many people are not used to being alone with their own thoughts and they're not encouraged to. And when you look at earlier cultures, uh, more traditional cultures, for better or worse. You have a slower pace of life, even though it is full, and there's where survival is a key focal point there. But one has to pay very close attention to their thoughts and, of course, their actions, because actions have consequences. It's not a video game. There's no do-over. There's no reset button. Now, you do something, and people may live or die based upon it. And things that would have been very simple now would have been lethal 50, 60, 100, 200 years ago, simply because of the wonderful advantages that we have in terms of medicine and healthcare. So we need to pay attention to our thoughts. And, and our thoughts are then, are they our own? This is probably the great crisis people have. People who are constantly being bombarded by media messages and images. And I noticed this many years ago when I took my son to the orthodontist and 
we left and he said, oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. So we said, well, what do you want? I, I want uh, pancakes or something. So we went to the, the restaurant right across from the orthodontist and there were probably at least two large television screens. And of course they have the news on. Now, when we were in the orthodontist office, there was a television screen there with some kind of media show on and people are looking at their media. So of course we, we've all learned about the problems of media saturation. But then the question is, how do you detox from it? And once that happens, how do you begin to deal with your own thoughts? Of course, coming from my point of view, as I've said previously, I really think it's very important that everyone have a, some kind of spiritual practice in which they come to terms with their own life, the value that they place on their life and what they want from it, but also one that involves a contemplative practice of reflection and meditation. Now, many places teach mindfulness now, mindfulness meditation, which is really observing your thoughts. And that's a good start. Learn to be mindful of what you're thinking and why. And that's the hard part. Many people believe that their thoughts are their own, but really most of the time they're not. And, and that can be very difficult because then we say, well, why do I think the way I do? Why do I have these urges? Why do I have these feelings? And you have to be willing to explore them and sit with them and realize that maybe it's because you've been watching too much television, too much streaming, too much YouTube videos. Maybe um, it's the people you hang out with. Thoughts are contagious. And this is something that many people have known for millennium. Uh, and yet somehow when your grandmother tells you, be careful of the company you keep, too many people laugh at it and don't realize you're going to become like the five people you spend the most time with. So pick your friends carefully. Now, maybe you say, well, I don't have friends, but it still doesn't matter. Who are your electronic friends? Who are the simulacrum of friends? Whether it be playing six or eight hours of video games a day with people you've never really met in person. And that's okay to play games and have fun, but it, it's, it's about the amount of time. So it's really important that you spend some time in the morning. We, we call it uh, 15 minutes is American standard meditation time, <laughs> but 10 or 15 minutes in the morning and then try to do 10 or 15 minutes in the, the evening and, and become okay with your thoughts. Because if, if you don't do this, they will erupt in your life and they will erupt in terms of health issues, sleeping disorders, nightmares, uh, general anxiety. And even when you undertake this path, they'll still erupt, but at least you'll have a way of dealing with them in a healthy way so that they let go. And that's where we hear a lot of people who had, what do they call it, cabin fever. And of course, cabin fever is something we typically associate with being stuck inside during the winter months. And of course, uh, the best example of that is, uh, what is it, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. <laughs> so we know that we need to get out more. We know that we need to spend time in healthier environments. We need to eat healthy, more exercise. But we also need to be healthy in our thinking. And January forces us, whether we like it or not, to recognize thoughts beget actions and actions have consequences. And it cannot be escaped. I wonder if the arts have a role in that kind of reflection, whether it be painting something that's coming from inside or maybe journaling, things like that. Is that part of this whole self-reflective process? I think that's one of the most important parts is then doing something with it. You know, we joked a little bit earlier about, you know, the Russian novelist. But if we look at some of the greatest minds, 
across history. We're not referring to an intellect that is just a thought process alone, but we're referring to a thought process that then becomes materialized, somatized in something real that the rest of us can see and experience. And we see that in the great scientists, we see that in the great artists, we see that in the great composers. And it, it's no secret then that many of them experienced some degree of, we'll say, mental health issues or psychological issues. But I think that's to, to 20th, 21st century, really. What they were experiencing is the reality of the crisis of life. That's what they were experiencing. And they took that energy, that pressure that came from them, and they used it in a positive way. Now, of course, some of them came to not so pleasant ends, but many of them didn't. Many of them pushed forward and, and turned that suffering, uh, that anxiety, that general neurosis, or even worse, into something productive and useful that the rest of the world could see and enjoy and experience. So that, that is the energy of life saying, pay attention to me. And when we don't pay attention to it, that's really when the crisis comes. That's where the, we'll call it the, the illness comes from. The dysfunction is ignoring that energy of life rather than expressing it and using it. And you talked about preparing for what we know is coming, and sometimes we don't know what's coming, but we know that there are certain things we can count on. And for example, you mentioned as we were sitting down for this conversation, the terrible snow, the blizzard in Buffalo. How can you prepare for something as monumental as the winds and the real devastation that something, a storm like that, or Ian, the hurricane, that sort of things that we need to be prepared for? But that means we also need to help each other. Well, that's it. Preparation is, is, a, is a mental process of accepting that this is a reality. And then there's the physical action that says, I'm, I need to be responsible for myself and my family. Uh, so that means whenever possible, you know, slowly preparing in a way. You know, my, you know what is, what is uh, unfortunately heavily politicized and turned into uh, a joke by many is just being prepared and realizing that nature has its own rules. Our grandparents, they would have thought nothing of having three months' supply of food on hand. It's just what you did because you probably grew it and canned it yourself. Even as a child, I remember having big gardens in our yard and my grandmother doing so much canning. And I see a lot of people now starting that. And it doesn't mean you have to have that month on, on hand, but I mean, look, e even the, uh, the federal government and the Red Cross say it went from three days to a week. Now they're telling you, you should have 10 days or more of food and water on hand in your house. So, you know, this is not being unrealistic. The lack of realism is saying that storms happen and waiting to the last minute to, to try and get something. And we know not everyone may be in the financial situation where they can stockpile uh, a week's worth or two weeks' worth and, and rotate that. But I, I'm sure that most of the listeners out there could do better than they are. And why that's important is because when you're able to take care of yourself, then you're able to help others. So that's part of that notion of being responsible. Responsible, we used to say, is the ability to respond. And I, I think that's really an important word is respond is a choice. Reaction is a habit. And that goes back to the thinking process. You know, do I really need to go out today? Do I really need to do this? You know, is my car in the best of condition? And, and sometimes that means having to accept some painful realities that, no, your car isn't in the best of condition. And we know you really want to go meet the family, but you know what? It's not that important. It's better to be alive and see them a week later.
We've given us a lot to think about, Mark, about this time of year and the notion of ringing out the old and ringing in the new fireworks. What do you make of fireworks around the world? Sydney first and going around the world as those fireworks. What's that about, do you think? Well, I always like fireworks. I think probably because it's a way of celebrating the fact that, you know, we're still here. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's probably an extension of, of earlier habits and traditions where, you know, you look at different places in the world and people would run outside and whether it was Christmas or a birthday or, or New Year's, they'd bang pans or they'd shoot their guns. And well, okay, instead of shooting off guns, let's do some fireworks. Uh, it, it, it's, it's prettier and louder and uh, the sky is perfect for it. You know, when it's dark like that, you get these nice, clear winter nights where it's a perfectly black sky. I mean, what, what better background to be painting these images of light, of mobile light to celebrate the nature of light? Because that's, again, what winter is reminding us that as things get dark, why are we celebrating these holidays? But we're celebrating the light that is born in darkness. And that light is not just a physical light, but it is a spiritual light as well, and a light of realization, and a light of, of creativity. I mean, life and realization, spirituality, these are all the same thing. It's the same energy. We, we often separate them out and divvy them up like a, like a frog on our high school uh, biology class. It, it is not that. These are all just expressions of that same thing. So when we have that joy and happiness and we see that light in the darkness, it, it is both metaphorical and literal. So that it creates within us that sense of joyfulness. And, and when you look at any crisis in life, a positive attitude is often very much the difference between someone who survives and someone who doesn't. And I can't go back to that often enough, only because we are so fortunate, we are so blessed that winter for us is merely an inconvenience. <laughs> for the most part, we had just spoken about buffalo. We have to kind of wrap our heads around the arc that technology and uh, creativity and civilization and all of these things have given us in our area in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, they just got four feet of snow up there. They got buried. But there's snow plows, there's trucks, there's an ability to move that on a level that simply, it didn't exist. You, know, you, can, probably point, you can probably point to a time when 50 years ago, even 70 years ago, picture that. Those who remember the, the great snowstorm of 72, remember that. I mean, just, things were locked up for a week, and that was maybe half the size of what they got. So we, we have to begin to appreciate, and I think that's maybe another aspect of this, upon reflection of our situation and what we're going to do with our lives, we begin to appreciate more what we have and how we're going to use it. Mark Stavish of the Wyoming Valley, a specialist in Western spiritual traditions and author of 26 books published in seven different languages. Simon & Schuster, through Inner Traditions, has published his recent book, Egregores, on the concept of a collective group mind. Mark Stavish stopped in at the WVIA studios to talk with us about the turning of the year and New Year's traditions. And for more information, facebook.com slash mark.stavish.5. S-T-A-V-I-S-H is Stavish. So facebook.com slash mark.stavish.5. 
Yeah. 